Coming soon in the spring of 2024, Dr. Paul Zeitz, physician, epidemiologist, and tenacious award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights, will be releasing his groundbreaking handbook, Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Revolutionary optimism galvanizes us on the path of self-liberation and invites us to unify with others to catalyze our collective liberation. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow for all humanity, all life on Earth, and for all future generations. Stay tuned for information on how to pre-order your copy. Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Coming soon to inspire you. It's go time! Welcome to Revolutionary Optimism. Living at this time in history, we are challenged with a convergence of crises that is affecting our daily lives. Issues like economic hardship, a teetering democracy, and the worsening climate emergency have left many Americans feeling more despair than ever. To respond to the challenging times we're living through, physician, humanitarian, and social justice advocate Dr. Paul Zeitz has identified revolutionary optimism as a new cure for hopelessness, despair, and cynicism. Revolutionary optimism is itself an infectious, contagious, self-created way of living and connecting with others on the path of love. Once you commit yourself as a revolutionary optimist, you can bravely unleash your personal power, hashtag unify with others, and accelerate action for our collective repair, justice, and peace. On this podcast, Dr. Zeitz is working to provide you with perspectives from leaders fighting for equity, justice, and peace on their strategies, insights, and tools for overcoming adversity and driving forward transformative solutions with unbridled revolutionary optimism and real-world pragmatism. In this episode, Dr. Zeitz is talking with Congressman Jamie Raskin, a dedicated public servant and a prominent figure in American politics. He has served as the U.S. Representative for Maryland's 8th Congressional District since January 2017. Raskin is known for his unwavering commitment to defending and strengthening American democracy. His career has been marked by a focus on constitutional law, civil rights, and environmental protection. As a leader in Congress, he has championed various policies and initiatives aimed at safeguarding the democratic process, ensuring the rights of American citizens, and addressing some of the most pressing challenges facing the nation. Throughout his time in Congress, Raskin has played a crucial role in key events and legislation, including his involvement in the second impeachment of President Donald Trump. He is widely recognized for his passion and dedication to upholding democratic values and principles. We are honored to have Congressman Jamie Raskin here to discuss his leadership in advocating for policies to protect American democracy and the broader issues surrounding the state of American democracy today. Here's your host, Dr. Paul Zeitz. Hey, thanks, uh, Congressman Raskin. It's a great honor to see you today and have you on my podcast. Um, is it okay if I call you Jamie? Please. Uh, I wanted to have like a heart-to-heart conversation with you. Um, I'm actually a constituent and a neighbor here in Silver Spring, and I want to really just thank you for your inspiring le- service and leadership. Um, we worked together in 2019 when I was with the Foundation for Climate Restoration, and you introduced that landmark uh, legislation to address the climate emergency. And then I, I, I did a lot of global AIDS advocacy, so I knew your dad at IPS. Um, so I just wanted to uh, acknowledge my deep connection with your lineage and with you and your, and your effort. And I'm so thankful for your leadership, honestly. I don't know how to say well, that anymore. Thank you kindly, Paul. That means a lot to me. And um, these are tough times, and the work that you're doing um, 
creates uh, a bright pathway for us to get through the darkness. So I appreciate it. Exactly. So I am a father of five sons, um, and I was deeply gripped by your memoir, Unthinkable, from your book, and uh, the kind of intense openness and vulnerability by which you shared your story was deeply inspiring and healing for me personally. And I want you to know that um, I've actively taken your parenting advice and I'm actively actively discussing suicide to demystify that in my family with my sons and their friends and that whole network. So I took that on as one of your key recommendations and I am living into that. So I appreciate you for sharing that through such a painful and difficult experience that you have had. So I really, I know, I want to know just how are you? You've been through a lot and, you know, things are tough. <laughs> um, we love you as a person. So I want to like stop all the political noise and just say, hey, how are you doing as a person? Well, I appreciate that, Paul. And thank you for reading my book um, and for um, what you said um, about talking to your sons, about, about Tommy and about um, the problem of suicide and the mental and emotional health crisis that our young people are facing because uh, not a day goes by that I don't hear about another family struggling with this. It's just a very hard, tough time for young people all over the world and here in America too. But um, I have absolutely nothing to complain about. You know, I went through my chemo. I finished all of that. I just went in for my six-month um, CAT scan and PET scan and dog scan, the whole thing, I suppose. And it came back um, good for me because the cancer generation and they couldn't find any cancer cells. So uh, my energy is back and I my neuropathy is gone and my nausea is gone and I'm hanging tough. And um, so I appreciate your asking. Wow. Our prayers are being answered. So all the healing prayers that were sent by so many. Thank, thank you. And you got world-class medical care, I'm sure. So I, um, I am a revolutionary optimist, uh, as you heard. So I was really excited when I got to page 11 of your book, when you talked about yourself as a constitutional optimist. <laughs> you talked about constitutional optimism that, you know, you even acknowledge it could be a dangerous thing, but you're always optimistic, you know? And then you talked about political optimism, right? And so I was like, okay, that was really, really interesting to me. Then later in the book, when the impeachment vote was happening, you made a speech and you were calling on others to vote for conviction. And you said, I know and I trust you to do impartial justice, driven by your meticulous attention to the overwhelming facts of the case and your love for our Constitution, which I know dwells in your heart. So that I thought was you know, what you were talking about, about constitutional optimism. So I'd love to hear your view of what is constitutional optimism. Well, I suppose I meant it as kind of um, uh, a double meaning, sort of a play on words. I'm a constitutional optimist in the sense that my constitution personally is one that is, at least so far, ineradicably optimistic, you know, and my siblings and my family have made fun of me forever about being Mr. Rose-colored glasses. And so <laughs> that is in the nature of my constitution as a person. And I suppose oh, we're great. kind of born into that. But I'm also 
uh, an optimist about the Constitution and about the way that the rule of law can save us when otherwise we are just driven by the passions and the emotions and anger and rage and partisanship and so on. You know, like yesterday, um, there was a motion to uh, expel George Santos from the House. And for me, it was an easy vote to vote against it because he's not been convicted of anything in um, any of the criminal trials that were cited in the resolution they brought against him. And his ethics process has not happened yet in the House. It's in the middle of it. So we're not looking at a criminal conviction or an ethics conviction. We've only expelled five people in American history. Uh, three of them were Confederate traitors to the Union, and the other two had felony criminal convictions, not just indictments. And so I could I could look at my colleagues on the floor and pick out four or five Democrats that they would immediately move to expel based mm. on lying as they see it. They said Adam Schiff lied about Trump. They've already censured him for it. Um, mm. But if we're expelling people for lying, for at least allegedly lying, without a criminal conviction or without an ethics process, um, they would very quickly go after Adam Schiff or mm. Rashida mm. Tlaib or Jamal Bowman. So right. This is why I say, you know, I'm a Constitution guy. Like, I, I think that we need rules for the road by which we proceed. Otherwise, you know, the human mind is just a, a little bit too precarious in terms of how we think about things. And we are swept away um, by our emotions. I mean, I campaigned against George Santos. I was up there not just several months ago in his district, you know, appealing to the Democrats. I told him to resign and so on. So I don't want him in the House, but I'm forced to think constitutionally about what removing him before any legal process. What the implications. Yeah, thank you. That's really insightful. And I appreciate your explaining that because that, that was helpful for me. So, okay, I, I think I get where you're at. You have personal uh, constitutional, like you, the person, Jamie Raskin, are optimistic by nature, and you bring a commitment to the rule of law as the ba and the Constitution is the way our country is being governed right now. So you bring that as our rule to, rule of law and, li and living by that. So that's really clear. I'm a small and C I and, a, and a capital C constitutional optimist. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, say that again. Make sure I want to understand that. What's well, the small I mean, C? I'm, in the first sense, I'm a, a small C constitutional optimist. That's okay. my nature. And I'm a capital right. C constitutional optimist. That's my belief in the Constitution. Okay, the perfect. Very helpful. We finally unpacked that. So now I'm a revolutionary optimist, which is different than a constitutional optimist. So I am like, I'm a doctor by training, and I have suffered from despair hopelessness, cynicism, skepticism. So I came up with a cure for living the path of love and looking at everything from put it by placing love at the center and then imagining what it would look like if our social, economic, and political systems put love at the center and for our collective repair, justice, and peace. So when I like explore that for myself, I get like revolutionary ideas. You know, uh, there's evolutionary progress over time, and then at times in history and life, there's transformational or revolutionary leaps that occur, you know? 
So I wanted to, I know you are a historian as well. You know, you're a secret historian as a, well as a political leader. So you've, I know you have a deep connection to Thomas Paine. And I know Tommy was even named after him. So I wanted to ask you, how does Thomas Paine's revolutionary spirit speak to us today? I mean, Tom Paine is an amazing figure, um, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons. But he came over to America in 1774, two years before the revolution. He wrote the crucial pamphlet that uh, really ignited the revolution, Common Sense, by which he meant the sense that people have without having to go to school or college or, you know, seminary at Princeton or whatever. Um, but also he meant the sense we have in common, all of us together, and if we're willing to trust our ability to reason together, then we'll be able to advance the cause of democratic freedom. And he said that, you know, he fell in love with the possibilities of America. He said if America lived up to its principles, that it would become an asylum to humanity. Not an insane <laughs> asylum, mind you, but you know, a place of <laughs> refuge for people seeking freedom from political and religious and economic oppression. So can you explain something to me? Yeah. So he wrote he wrote uh, Common Sense or published Common Sense on January 10th, 1776. Yeah. That's six months before the actual revolution got sparked yes. with the Declaration of Independence. And then he wrote the book, The Crisis, which uh, was published in December of that year. So six, kind of six months after the Declaration of Independence. I don't fully understand that history. Um, and maybe it's not relevant, but I just thought maybe well, you well, know Well, no, I mean, the, you know, Common Sense was meant as an organizing pamphlet for the revolution and for a declaration of the principles. A lot of them infused the Declaration of Independence that... Jefferson wrote, but, um, you know, it was about, um, you know, how ridiculous the idea of hereditary rulers is. He said, you know, a hereditary ruler makes as much sense as a hereditary mathematician. You know, I mean, it, I mean right. it might work, but it might not. But the people right. have got to choose their own rulers. The people have got to choose um, our own leaders. But the people always must be sovereign. And those of us who aspire and attain to public office are nothing but the servants of the people. And that's the proper relationship in uh, democracy. Um, so he was assailing monarchy and nobility and uh, all of the ancient um, titles and privileges and so on. He was also attacking, of course, this, the fusion of church and state and the idea of an established religion. And mm -hmm. in the age of reason, um, he attacked organized religion, basically, and came out at least as a deist, if not as uh, a non-believer. But he mm -hmm. took the position that um, uh, established churches um, enact repressive political programs and also interfere with people's own ability to have their own spiritual faith, beliefs, and odyssey in life. Mm. So, mm. you know, a very visionary, radical thinker um, who, you know, was as central to the Enlightenment as Voltaire or Rousseau or, you know, mm. any of the, the French people. 
Yeah, so I, um, I'm i living into this kind of sense that I'm sensing for this moment that we're living in now. I feel the trembling of a peaceful revolution. Uh, I feel like uh, we are at a crossroads. We have to choose repair or destruction. We're literally at that crossroad. And your expertise and your leadership, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the authoritarian playbook by uh, Protect Democracy. Basically, it was what you learned from your impeachment trial. Like, we're in the middle. We're not, it's not we're coming up to it. We're actually in the midst of an authoritarian takeover. Is that, would you agree with that? Um, especially when the number two in line for the president is part of this movement that doesn't respect democracy or the rule of law. Well, we basically defeated them uh, in the battle that was January 6th, but we are in the middle of the big struggle. Um, obviously, Trump hasn't gone away. Trumpism hasn't gone away. He's only consolidated his control over the Republican Party. And yeah. that party now operates with essentially authoritarian precepts. What are the critical characteristics of an authoritarian party? Well, number one, they don't accept the results of uh, popular elections that don't go their way. Um, two is they embrace or refuse to renounce political violence as an instrument of obtaining political power. And three, they generally report to one autocratic leader who dictates what everybody is going to think. And of course, the GOP now no longer adopts platforms and it's impossible to say what they stand for until Donald Trump tells them what they stand for. Yeah. And so he's like competing for president. He's, you know, impeached twice, multiple indictments, hasn't been convicted yet uh, by any of these efforts. And, you know, he is like, so to me, it's like, feels like we might be on the brink of an authoritarian takeover of our government, which is like, uh, yeah. you know, like that is not acceptable to me personally. So like, I don't like people think, oh, this is going to happen like down the road. I'm like, no. We're in the midst of it right now. Yeah. So I want to, I want you to say if I'm right or wrong. Like I'm like, oh, no, I'm ringing the alarm bell. Right. We are in the midst of this struggle. Um, I, I would just, you know, add one postscript, which is he has been impeached twice by the House of Representatives. And in the second impeachment where um, I led the uh, impeachment managers to go over to prosecute Trump, there was a 57 to 43 vote to convict him. Now that substantial majority vote was not enough to convict him because it's a two-thirds requirement, but we've got bicameral, bipartisan, concurrent majorities uh, finding as a matter of legislative fact that he tried to overthrow the Constitution of the United States. And that, to me, should be enough to block him under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But of course, like everything else in the time of Trump, it's a case of first impression. So we don't know exactly how the courts will rule on this, uh, especially a lot of Okay, so that's going through the courts. Multiple states are invoking that yeah. right now, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's, dubi that's, uh, that's one thing. Being litigated in Colorado. And then these indictments are happening, and maybe a conviction will happen, but that wouldn't knock him out to run for president, according to the, our Constitution, right? He's still eligible to run. No. if if it the, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that anyone who has sworn an oath to support the Constitution of the United States but violates the oath, by engaging in insurrection or rebellion, shall never be allowed to hold federal or state office again. So the question is, do you need a criminal conviction? Um, or, you know, the Constitution doesn't say you need a criminal conviction. Is it enough that he's been impeached for it? Um, or, alternatively, will courts say 
what this means is that the court, for example, it's being litigated in Colorado now, the court itself will conduct a civil trial as to whether or not he engaged in an insurrection. And then it'll get up to the Supreme Court at some point and we'll see what happens. But yeah, so let's, that's all happening. So first of all, thank you for your service on the second as the lead manager for the second impeachment. It was a fantastic, you know, rule of law, bipartisan. I was like, it made me optimistic, not constitutionally optimistic, because I wanted to like make sure we got touched on, I'm sure you know Jack um, Balkin's book, Cycles of Constitutional Time. It's a very fascinating book. I'm a doctor, by the way. So like, I'm just like asking stupid questions because I don't, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, you know? So, uh, but Cycles of Constitutional Time talks about a process of you get a constitution, then they get rotten, constitutional rot, and then you renew them and you transform them. So it's like a cycle, cycle of time, you know? We have that in life too, as you know. So I am like kind of wanting to explore with you. I know we're running out of time, but I believe that we are, a lot of what's going on right now can be explained by, uh, by understanding that this is constitutional rot. So the difficulty in selecting a leader of the house, that sounded like constitutional rot to me. The pending, uh, federal government shutdown because Congress isn't doing its job or may not do its job while people in the United States are suffering, that sounds like constitutional rot to me. The fact that President uh, Trump is even eligible to run with everything that we just discussed, to me, is a clear sign that this little uh, document is like not working for the era that we're in. So I call that constitutional rot. Uh, the judiciary is like uh, has low support, low trust, and they're uh, actively disempowering the federal administrative state, some people say. So uh, the state of play right now is, I think all those things are evidence of constitutional rot. So to me, like we're on the cusp of the possibility of constitutional renewal and transformation. So do you agree with the assessment of constitutional rot? And if any part of that might be true, what are your top priorities for constitutional renewal and transformation? Yeah, no, unfortunately, I, I have not uh, read that book. I don't know that book. But I will say that, you know, for most of the history of our species, human beings have lived under tyranny, under autocrats and dictators and people like Donald Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin. That's been the standard. And uh, American democracy is very much the exception. And the constitutional democracies are the ones that are trying to stand up for people's freedom. Lincoln put it nicely when he said that the constitutional framework um, is like a silver platter, but upon it rests, rests the golden apple of freedom and liberty. Cool. And that's what he thought was identified and elucidated in the Declaration of Independence. And so um, democracy is necessary for people to have freedom, is what he was saying. You know, if you look at, if you read our Constitution and the bill and the amendments the way that I do, the vast majority of the amendments we've had since the original Bill of Rights have been democracy expanding, suffrage mm -hmm. extending, democracy deepening amendments, right? To so the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, 14th Amendment gives us equal protection due process, the 15th Amendment bans race discrimination in voting, 17th Amendment shifts the mode of election of the U.S. senators from 
the states' legislatures to the people. The 19th Amendment doubles the franchise in America, women's suffrage. The 23rd Amendment gives people in D.C. the right to participate in presidential elections. The 24th Amendment bans poll taxes. The 26th Amendment lowers the voting age to 18. So all of it is about the expansion and the deepening of democracy. And we got to keep that process going. We don't have one constitutional amendment yet that just guarantees everybody the right to vote. So we have millions of disenfranchised people, former prisoners still in about seven or eight states don't have the right to vote back. People in D.C. can't vote for members of Congress. People in Puerto Rico, three and a half million of them are disenfranchised. And so, you know, we got to talk about all of the specifics. I mean, it's worth another show. But, you know, statehood is a very important part of the historical trajectory of democratic inclusion. But there are constitutional amendments that are needed. We obviously have to get rid of the Electoral College which is antiquated and obsolete. It's given us five presidents who were popular vote losers twice in this century alone, 2000 and 2016. And, um, it, you know, it's an accident waiting to happen. And there are so many nooks and crannies and phases in it that if you've got a bad faith strategic actor like Donald Trump, he can turn each of those phases um, and oddities in the Electoral College into another opportunity to try to revisit the election and steal the presidency. And that's what we dealt with on January 6th. I mean, that whole proceeding was required by the Constitution. But if we did it, if we elected the president the way we elected governors, senators, mayors, and everybody else, we wouldn't have needed that. We would have just counted the votes. Right. In the winter, Popular vote. Yeah, exactly. One person, one vote. Yeah. I'm with you on all those reforms that you just rattled off. The question I have, and we can like come back to this next time uh, or next year when we do have you back, but I believe that all those things that you do, I think we're probably 95% aligned on all the reforms that are ideal. The question is, the current constitution makes it so hard to modify things. I'm actually advocating for a national people's convention that has representation from state legislatures and authentically representing the, the public. And we rewrite a new covenant, a new social contract that includes a social contract with the environment and earth, as Ecuador has done. They built in the doctrine of nature rights. Like we need a, I feel like this one is like so dead and rotten. We need a heart transplant because the heart of America is dying. As a doctor, you don't wait to do a heart transplant in 10 years, 20 years. You do it right now and you do it quick. And then you restart with a new a transformation or renewal. Now, some people say we'll do a batch of amendments. I'm like, okay, go for it. Like, I don't see that happening. So I, I just want you to know where I think that we're in a serious state of the heart of America is dying. The constitution is rotten. You look through that lens, you go, oh, that explains a lot of what's going on. And what are we going to do about it? I don't want to wait till we have an authoritarian takeover personally. Like, I just don't want to live under that I don't think that's acceptable. So we have to like think about that. So yeah. any thoughts are appreciated and then I'll let you go off to real business. Well, look, I'd, I'd love to um, uh, I'd, I'd love to read your plan and your analysis of how we would uh, do such a thing. So I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. All I will say is that on January 6th, we saw people who literally led by Donald Trump, who literally tried to set the constitution aside um, did not think it was working, said it was all rotten, it was all corrupt, and they were perfectly ready, you know, to allow the um, QAnon shaman and 
the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers uh, constitute a new convention for us. So, um, you know, I, I've I've had that constitutional moment. Uh, you know, obviously that's not what Professor Balkan's got in mind, but uh, maybe I'm just becoming too conservative in my old age. But I kind of feel like we've got to stick with the institutions and the Constitution we've got and then try to dramatically improve them, which we've done in the past. I mean, you know, the Civil War led to the Reconstruction Amendments in a completely new Constitution. That was renewal and transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just like I'm living I'm I'm dialoguing a lot with people about this. Love to talk to you further. Thank you again for your amazing leadership. I it's an honor truly to talk with you today. You have a lot of people behind you, so feel held by your constituents and many people across the country and the world, because we understand that democracy is at stake here in the United States, but it's also rattling and uh, teetering all over the world, as we well know. Well, thank you for your solidarity and encouragement and friendship, Paul. It means a lot to me, and thank you for your activism. And uh, it's been a wonderful break from a tough day, but I gotta get back to work, and uh, I look forward to talking to you um, in the New York. Wow, that was an amazing opportunity to get the wisdom and uh, leadership voice from uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin. He is the epitome of a revolutionary optimist, in my view. He stands for the rule of law. He's committed to the Constitution and the principles of liberty and freedom and justice for all. And he he walks the talk. He lives that and uh, spends his life legislating and leading the efforts on Capitol Hill for the Democratic side. He has a deep personal uh, story. He lost his son to suicide a couple years ago, and he shared that story in his book, Unthinkable, and I highly recommend that you read it. He talked about resilience and about coming back from such a tragic loss and the grief that I'm sure he still feels every day uh, for the loss of his son. And also, like, he's an optimist. In his body, constitutionally, he considers himself an optimist. And he's optimistic about the potential of the American idea, as articulated in the in the Declaration of Independence, the life, liberty, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I believe he uh, talked about how the Constitution has been upgraded and expanded rights throughout its history, in terms of from the Bill of Rights and all the amendments through Reconstruction and then suffrage and then so forth and so on. Uh, We began a conversation to talk about uh, what we needed right now for constitutional renewal and transformation. He said, get rid of the Electoral College. I'm sure he probably supports the Equal Rights Amendment. He talked about one person, one vote, and uh, many other very important reforms. So we raised the question about how do you do that? Do you do that through the uh, rules of this constitution, or do you launch the idea of a National People's Convention? that would actually uh, agree upon a new covenant for the United States or a new kind of a social contract where you could include the doctrine of nature and have a relationship with the environment, but also all the elements that Jamie talked about. So wondering uh, if we can spark a peaceful revolution and actually deliver a new constitutional order in the midst of all this crisis and the fact that we're on the brink of an authoritarian takeover, which Jamie affirmed to be true. 
So that's uh, my take on Jamie Raskin. He is like an amazing leader. His moment in history is still coming as far as I can see. So thank you and have a great week ahead. Are you ready to be part of the revolution? To learn more about revolutionary optimism, please visit drpaulzeitz.org. To explore building movements, please visit unifymovements.org. If you like this show, be sure to follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Revolutionary Optimism, transforming the world one episode at a time.